Welcome to the Legacy of John Williams podcast. I'm your host, Maurizio Caschetto. My guest today is legendary trumpeteer, Tim Morrison. Tim Morrison is one of the most celebrated and talented trumpet players of his generation. From 1987 to 1997, he has been associate principal trumpet of the Boston Symphony Orchestra and principal trumpet of the Boston Pops. His beautiful, warm sound was immediately noticed by John Williams who then was music director of the Pops. In 1989, Williams asked Morrison to be soloist on the score for the Oliver Stone film Born on the 4th of July. moment onward, Tim Morrison became the trumpet soloist in many other John Williams projects, including JFK, Nixon, Amistad and the Centennial Olympic Games theme Summon the Heroes. In 1997, Tim left the Boston Symphony and moved to Los Angeles to start his career as a studio musician, performing in hundreds of film and television recordings. He played in the trumpet section of virtually all John Williams scores recorded in LA until 2011. He was also featured soloist in famous film scores by other composers, including Apollo 13 by James Horner. In this conversation, Tim talks about his musical life and his many projects with John Williams, including his experiences as a member of the Boston Pops and his solo work for Born on the 4th of July, JFK and Saving Private Ryan. He also talks about the transition from being a classical player to a studio musician and his solo recording project called After Hours.
Today, I'm very happy to have here with me a very special guest on the Legacy of John Williams podcast, Tim Morrison. Hello, team, and thank you for being here with me. Thank you, Maurizio. Pleasure to talk with you. And joining me as a co-host uh, today is once again one of the best friends of the Legacy of John Williams uh, from United Kingdom, uh, film music journalist and film music foundation member, Tim Burden. Hello, team, and thank you for being here with me, too. Great pleasure. Lovely to be here to chat about this, uh, you know, wonderful marriage of music. As I always do with all, all my guests in this podcast, I'd like to start a conversation talking about musical background and formation. Uh, so, Tim, uh, how did you decide to become a professional musician? Did you grow up in a musical household? Well, my dad, uh, in addition to being a, a jazz saxophonist and clarinetist, uh, was my junior high school band director. And uh, he started me out on the French horn, actually. And uh, I remember him saying, son, you have to have a really good ear to play the French horn. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I took the bait and uh, about a thousand offbeats later, I, I, I realized that if I wanted to have anything to do with playing the melody, I better make my way into the trumpet section. Uh, mm -hmm. So the following year, I switched to trumpet and played all through my junior and senior high school years, but uh, didn't really practice much. Uh, I was more interested in sports at that stage in my life. And uh, I played in all the, the school ensembles and, and was generally involved in music. But uh, it wasn't until my junior year in high school that I got serious about playing the trumpet and uh, started taking lessons with uh, Fred Sauter, who was the principal trumpet of the Oregon Symphony at the time. And, mm -hmm. and uh, he really got me started on my journey as a player. Uh, he was a great teacher and really got me uh, disciplined and, and routine oriented in my practice habits. And it was during those two years that I, that I studied with him that I, I saw a big improvement in my playing. And that was a, a great motivator for me. Uh, I won the Oregon State solo competition those two years. And at some point, my, my senior year, Fred contacted Gunther Schuler, who was the pre president of the Noon Conservatory at the time, and uh, told him that uh, he had a student they should hear. So they came out to Portland on their national audition tour, and I played for them and was accepted into NEC in uh, 1974. Yes. And, uh, you know, that was a big deal going from, from Portland to Boston. Uh, it was actually a huge culture shock for me. Uh, I mean, I didn't, I didn't have any classical music experience per se, and certainly as far as any orchestral and chamber music was concerned. Uh, you know, we had the Portland Youth Symphony, which I, <laughs> I never got into, unfortunately. And, and in general, there just wasn't much of an orchestral and classical music culture in our public school system in Oregon. So uh, when I left for Boston, I was about as green as they come. And I, I spent the next four years just, uh, you know, trying to make up for lost time and, and learn everything I could. So, I, you know, I, I studied trumpet there with Armando Gatala and Roger Voisin, who were uh, both former legendary principal mm -hmm. trumpets yeah. for the Boston Symphony. I think uh, Armando Gitala was also the teacher of Tom Hooden, yes. the L.A. field principal trumpet, with whom I talked a couple of years ago. Yeah, Gatala had uh, many students that went on to have great careers, both as orchestral and chamber musicians. Uh, 
just such an extraordinary musician and, and a really exciting performer. He was he was just incredible. Yes, uh, the BSO brass sound has always been incredible. Uh, I particularly remember our recording of Mahler's First Symphony, conducted by Seiji Zawa in the late 1970s. Uh, there is some very impressive trumpet playing in that recording. Right, exactly. was at NEC, I, I, I had the opportunity to play in some great ensembles with some really excellent young musicians. And it was a great learning environment. Uh, it really was. And I, I was really lucky to have had a fellow trumpet student at NEC, mm-hmm. uh, a guy named Doug Morton, who I'm good friends with to this day, actually, that I probably learned more from than, than anyone else. Uh, he was a year ahead of me and uh, was an excellent player. It had gone to the Interlochen Arts Academy and, you know, was just really well versed in orchestral playing. He knew all the players, all the orchestras and the repertoire. And, you know, he really took me under his wing and taught me so much. And, and that was really invaluable for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, after graduating from NEC, I, I ended up in Mexico, of all places, playing with the orchestra of the state of Mexico. Um, got a lot of experience playing a lot of repertoire, which is exactly what I needed. And uh, I ended up spending a year and a half there before winning my first job in the BSO in, in 1980, um, playing second trumpet in both the BSO and Pops. Okay, yeah. Then left the orchestra in 84 to record and tour with the Empire Brass for two to three years. Um, then as luck and timing would have it, there just happened to be an opening for uh, assistant principal of the Boston Symphony and principal of the Pops. So I auditioned for that and uh, and ended up returning to the BSO in uh, 1987. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is uh, essentially when my relationship with John really got started. Uh, as his principal player, uh, he took a particular notice of me and certainly got a, a good feel for my playing. And it ended up being what would be the beginning of the John Williams era of my career. Yeah, that's quite an impressive build up to that uh, seminal moment, I should say. Uh, but before starting to talk about your collaborations with John, uh, I'd love to touch upon a particular topic. Uh, uh, do you think there is a specific American way of playing the trumpet, in your opinion? Well, I don't know if there's a, an American way of playing the trumpet, per se, but uh, you know, there are certainly players who have helped define what 
could be considered an American style of plan, I guess you could say. Yeah, of course. Yes. Uh, three of my favorites are Doc Severinsen, Bud Herseth, and, and Yuan Racy. And uh, I think the characteristics they all share in common are just a big, bold, and expressive approach to playing the trumpet. No, because, you know, uh, my question was actually suggested by a comment by John Williams himself uh, about you and your playing. Uh, you know, once he said that you have a true American sound. So what do you think he meant uh, with that? Well, I'm honestly not sure what he meant by that. You know, I, I probably should have asked him. Uh, I, I think uh, some of it is what I touched on in my last comment uh, about a particular boldness and, and attitude in the plane. But uh, he was probably also referring uh, to a certain openness and freedom of expression, I suspect. I think a lot of it's to do, obviously, definitely with intonation, but it's also, it's that, you know, that, that kind of singing vibrato and, and it's also, there's a kind of warmth, which of course your playing is famous for. And Richie and I have spoken about this over the years many times. You know, if we use an example, like uh, Amistad's Long Road to Justice, you know, about 50 seconds in, there's this wonderful kind of slur, you know, in a beautiful kind of, almost a like a lilting slur, which, and, and that's quintessential. I mean, this is like John Adams. This is what a, a legendary American story. And that's where I think you have that kind of special I mean, I think that's what John Williams means. Well, in the final analysis, it's uh, it's one's musicianship, their their personal expression, and overall concept of sound. I think that that defines any player. And in in my particular case, it happened to be the lyric playing that became my calling card as a player, and is what I'll likely be most remembered for. Let's backtrack a little bit. Uh, you first joined the BSO in 1980, which was concurrently also John Williams' 
first year as Boston Pops principal conductor, am I right? Uh, yeah, I joined the BSO in 1980, but uh, Tanglewood was my first experience as a, as a member of the BSO. So my first pop season would have been the following year in, in 81. And so when you came back in 1987 as principal of the pops, um, did you notice any changes in John's approach to conducting or in his relationship with the orchestra? Well, John was always a good conductor, so that aspect of his directorship didn't really change, per se. Uh, I think what did change was just him fully embracing the responsibility of being the full-time Pops music director, you know, yes. which must have felt a bit overwhelming for him being so in demand as a film score composer. Yeah, he also put uh, the Pops into a new spotlight, I think, you know. Uh, expanding the repertoire in concerts and also with new recordings, which was something I guess was much needed after so many years with Arthur Fiedler. Well, for one thing, I, I think he really brought a whole new dimension to the programming uh, with all of his music and, and the whole film score music genre in general and uh, his connections with so many great artists on all sides of the music spectrum, really, that, that performed with us. I think there was a, also a broadening of the, of the overall audience appeal, certainly more appealing to the younger generation, I think. And, and I think he also took the pops to a whole new level of exposure with increased touring and television appearances. Whenever you were saying that Williams first started to notice you, I, I would you know, put a guess it would be the, the Salute to Hollywood album, which came out on Phillips, and that was 1988. And there's some incredible solos from you there. Obviously, there's La Bamba. <laughs> which is lots of fun, but there's a fantastic tribute to Judy Garland and that's definitely your sound, you know, shining through there during that, um, I think it was a, like a medley, um, a tribute to Judy Garland. And there was also William's own arrangement of Hooray for Hollywood, which is this lovely bright sound. I would say, and I'm sure Maurizio will agree, I would say that album 
would would be a highlight made William sit up and notice, you know, this guy <laughs> needs to do more films, you know. <laughs> well, you know, that's interesting to hear. Uh, you know, I honestly don't uh, recall much about that album, actually. That, that must have been the first album I recorded as principal of the orchestra, I guess. And uh, I think the last album we recorded with Philip before picking up that Sony contract, if I'm not mistaken. I think that contract with Sony, it was more beneficial for everyone. Sony Classical and that contract was like an embarrassment of riches. Uh, yeah, I agree. Those Sony records sound great. And, uh, you know, John had brought out Sean Murphy, uh, who's his go-to Hollywood recording engineer for all those Sony recordings. And, uh, yeah. you know, Sean has great ears and, and sonically captured the orchestra beautifully, I think. Mm. Are there any highlights from that period that uh, are still in your mind or some specific concert or some recordings? Well, for me personally, the, the performances that stand out are the tours we did in Japan in uh, 1990 and 93, I think. Uh, the orchestra sounded as good as I'd ever heard it on those two tours. Uh, and as far as recordings, uh, the two Williams Spielberg albums we did were great fun. Yeah. Some of the heroes would be right up there for obvious reasons. Oh yes, absolutely, yeah. But the uh, the overall capper for me would uh, have to be music for stage and screen, I think. I was so fortunate to be able to play both uh, excerpts from Born on the Fourth of July as well as uh, Copeland's Quiet City. Uh, yes. That was an extraordinary opportunity.
And so we now arrive at 1989, uh, which is the year uh, when John Williams uh, asked you to be soloist on his score for Oliver Stone's uh, movie, Born on the Fourth of July, a uh, very powerful movie based on the true story of Vietnam War veteran Ron Kovic, uh, starring Tom Cruise. Uh, and that was a major project for for John uh, his first collaboration with Oliver Stone so what what do you remember uh, about John approaching you and asking you to be soloist on that uh, exceptional school well I, I think I reacted a bit like a doe caught in the headlights uh, <laughs> as I recall <laughs> uh, but of course I was you know thrilled and flattered that he would even ask me to do such a thing I mean I'd never done anything like that before so yeah, it was exciting. Then, uh, despite feeling a, a bit intimidated initially, uh, ultimately, I just really looked forward to the opportunity. Did you see any of the music in advance before starting recording? Uh, I mean, how usually does that uh, work out? Uh, did John talk to you uh, about the style he wanted, the style of playing, the sound he wanted from you, or things like that? Yeah, I don't remember so precisely, but I, I'm pretty sure I must have seen the solo part ahead of time. Uh... I mean, I didn't walk into the studio completely in the dark about it, what I was going to have to play, but uh, it wasn't until the first rehearsal that I heard the full orchestra part, uh, that much I do recall. And, and you know, as far as any discussion about interpretation, uh, we never really talked about that. And I assume that's probably the case with any soloist John writes for. I, I think he generally knows who he's writing for and knows that they'll understand what he's after without any explanation necessarily i think you were like the sound metaphorically of von kovic as a boy weren't you i think you were emphasizing his youth uh, i mean I, that's what I kind of would you agree yeah i guess you could say that i uh, just think of the trumpet as an accompanimental voice that uh, you know depicted the anguish of the war experience as well as the innocence of his youth yes
after the success of one on the 4th of July, which was also nominated for an Academy Award, in 1991 you were again called by John uh, to be the feature soloist on another uh, Oliver Stone film called JFK, uh, which was a very powerful and compelling uh, movie about the, the mysteries surrounding the assassination of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Um, again, you were called to be the very prominent solo voice uh, of the movie uh, in that iconic, powerful solo that opens the film and again is a, probably another example of that beautiful American sound we were talking about uh, before. Well, the JFK solo is a, it's a great trumpet moment. And again, it, it was a big deal for me to, to be asked to step up and, mm -hmm. and take a shot at what certainly has become an iconic solo for many of the fans of John's writing. Yeah. And certainly a favorite among many trumpet players. JFK is now part of the regular trumpet repertoire. I mean, every trumpeteer in the world wants to, to play that. Um, I also saw a video on YouTube of you performing the theme uh, in Japan with John Williams conducting the Boston Pops. Yeah, those are uh, really amazing tours. And, and as I said earlier, uh, probably some of the best and most memorable concerts we ever played during my years in the orchestra. We did Born on the 4th of July on the first tour in, in 90 and uh, JFK on the tour in 93. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, what, what can I say? It was a, a really exciting time in my career and certainly some great memories to look back on for sure. JFK was uh, 
probably the school that really put you uh, on the map in the sense that uh, you were started to be called by other composers who listened to you and said, hmm, I want that trumpet sound in my film score too. <laughs> so you started to appear as feature soloist also in other composers' film scores. And of course, I'm thinking of especially uh, the beautiful score by James Horner, Apollo 13, in which you were the feature trumpet soloist. Well, you know, uh, there's certainly no doubt that the work I did for John brought me to the attention of other composers. Um, as you mentioned, there was Apollo 13 for Horner, and I also did a few uh, solo spots for James Newton Howard and Hans Zimmer, a couple of really nice solos for Mark Eichen for a score for the movie Bobby, uh, about Bobby Kennedy, and... Uh, I also did a bit for uh, Stanley Clark for a movie called Panther, which uh, bore striking similarity to the JFK solo, actually. And talking about Apollo 13, um, I'm thinking that, again, you were given a huge spotlight in that movie because uh, the movie opens with that huge, beautiful, warm trumpet solo. Yeah, that's uh, right, yeah. And so I guess that for you was, again, a, a very special moment. But actually, the score features uh, a lot of other beautiful trumpet solo writing all over the score, not just in, in the opening. Yeah, that opening solo was uh, was definitely a spotlighted moment for the trumpet, for sure. But, uh, you know, you're right. There were some very nice solos throughout that score. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was unique about this experience, uh, at least for me at the time, uh, was the fact that I was actually playing in the trumpet section for the entire film rather than uh, just acting as a separated soloist, mm -hmm. which yeah. had been the case for for all the other films that I'd done up to that point. Yeah. Yeah, I, I loved the score and, and really enjoyed doing it. Uh, James wrote some really beautiful lines for the trumpet for this picture, no doubt. In 1995, uh, which was the year of Apollo 13, you also appeared in another John Williams score, uh, again for another Oliver Stone movie uh, called Nixon. In this score, you have a very beautiful uh, trumpet solo moment uh, in a very different character than 
the previous solos you did for John. Uh, this time more Americana, bluesy kind of feeling, uh, almost 19th century, I would say. Yeah, it was a unique solo, I felt, uh, just the style and feel of it and the different twists and turns it, it took melodically. Um, definitely a bit of a departure from many of the other solos I'd played for John. Yeah, it's such a beautiful solo, yes. With Nixon, yeah, I mean, completing that, you know, there's, uh, that's actually, because you, you might be interested to hear this, that um, Philip Cobb, who, who now is principal trumpet with the BBC Symphony Orchestra. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know Phil. He used to be, you know, Philip, yeah, but actually, he, whenever he first heard that cue, that was one of the, you know, one of the reasons, like, um, he, he started playing the trumpet. Uh, I mean, I don't know whether, he, I don't know whether he's ever told you this, but it's one of his, uh, one of his favorites. I mean, because he, was a successor of Morris Murphy with the LSO, you probably know. Wow, well, <laughs> that's just so flattering to hear, you know. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Phil's playing, and, uh, you know, to hear that coming from him is quite a compliment, you know. Mm. Uh, I, I had posted that Nixon solo on my music Facebook page and, and had noticed that Phil had commented on it, but, uh, you know, aside from some kind compliments, there was no particular mention of how influential that solo actually was for him so that's really cool to hear another thing that john williams said in an interview about you was that there is a real serenity in your playing <laughs> and i and i think it's a very apt description of your sound very apt well i'm far from serene but i'm glad that comes out in my playing. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to get in touch with that part of myself a little more often. But, you know. <laughs> it's in there somewhere, I guess. No, but actually I'm thinking about the solo for some of the heroes, you know, the 1996 Atlanta Looming Games you, you mentioned before. Mm -hmm. uh, that is an incredible piece, of course, but the composition opens with that huge fanfare played by, I don't know how many trumpets, 12, 14 trumpets. And then after quieting down, here comes your solo.
and then the piece takes off and this gorgeous fantastic development uh, so but mm, what do you remember about uh, recording that piece and that album yeah uh well summon the heroes was the first thing we did at uh, 10 a.m <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> then it just got worse from there basically and uh you know i, I say that because uh, this album was an absolute chop buster from start to finish it yeah <laughs> it was uh, it, it was just relentless but did you play also the crazy trumpet part that follows the solo yeah i played everything from top to bottom uh probably shouldn't have played that opening section before that solo but but it worked out okay uh, <laughs> yeah that's just me looking back on it uh with the perspective of a retired 65 year old i guess <laughs> I think John re-recorded eventually in LA some of that uh, stuff for of some of the heroes, and he wrote variations and shorter versions and things like that for the TV coverage for NBC. Mm. So, do you remember anything about those sessions? Uh, sure, he does. Uh, he does that for all the Olympic themes he writes. Uh, as you say, they do bumpers. Uh, they do intro and outro bits for commercial breaks and ads, etc. Uh, we also did a redo of the NBC News theme and, and then uh, did a lot of additional material for uh, a number of different NBC shows like the Today Show, I believe, Chris Matthews and some others. Yeah, some really difficult stuff, as I recall. Yes, I saw a video on YouTube where you are featured as a soloist on the piece. Yeah, that uh, that took me totally by surprise, actually. Uh, you know, usually they give me a heads up on something like that, but uh, yeah, <laughs> not in this particular case for some reason. Probably better that way, you know, kept me from wasting time worrying about it ahead of time, you know. <laughs>
so I'd like to to talk with you about uh, uh, the next phase of your musical life. When in 1997 you left the BSO mm -hmm. and started your career as a studio musician in Los Angeles, playing in I know hundreds of film scores for many great composers, not just John Williams. So how important was your your previous experience with John? And and did he somehow inspired you to follow that path that in your musical life? Well, I, I guess you could say I was somewhat inspired by him to, to make the move, but he, you know, never outright encouraged me to leave the orchestra and move to LA. I, I did talk with him at, at Tanglewood the summer before I left the orchestra. And I told him that I was considering leaving and uh, mm -hmm. moving out there, but he just said that if I was going to do that, I'd better do it sooner than later. And he saw the handwriting on the wall for the recording industry and saw that the work was beginning to move elsewhere, places like London and, and East Europe, for example. Yeah. So uh, I needed to get out there while the getting was still relatively good, and, and that's what I ended up doing. I think I remember that I read somewhere, I don't know where, uh, that Sandy the Crescent was uh, another person very important in you for you know uh, taking that decision. Yeah, I think the, 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 the most important call that I made before moving out to LA was, was actually to Sandy, uh, who was the, the major film score contractor at the time. Um, she did all John's contracting as well as uh, most of the other big name composers. I mean, I, I spoke with her and, and told her my intentions and she told me that she'd do everything she could to help me. So once I heard that from her, I was all in and, and made the move and, and she kept her word and, and really made that possible for me to do. Whenever we think about Saving Private Ryan, which was just like a year after you left um, the Boston Symphony, mm. was that, you know, playing with Thomas Rolfs, was that, was that an easy kind of, I mean, I take it it was all good terms you left, or was it kind of a bit weird? <laughs> no, no, it wasn't awkward at all. Uh, you know, and I, I don't think there were any hard feelings about me leaving the orchestra, actually. Mm. You know, certainly not coming from Tom, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that decision worked out pretty well for him, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, now, to me, it actually felt more like a, a homecoming of sorts. Uh, it was just really special to come back and do this score with Tom and, and all my former colleagues. And I thoroughly enjoyed every moment of it. Mm, yeah. I think we all did. Yeah.
I think we could say that you were once again called to interpret the American spirit and, and speak the American voice for, for that score, uh, together with Tom Rolfe's playing in duet with you. Um, but this time was something much more somber and mournful, much more uh, reserved, we can say. Uh, so how much different was that uh, score for you? Did John talk about you know, uh, playing things differently than before, things like that? Well, this is what you were asking me about earlier, Maurizio, uh, you know, about whether or not John offers any interpretive guidance. And, and again, uh, you know, there was really no need for it. You know, you just start playing and the interpretive element is uh, just kind of baked into the music. You, you just play and react to the musical context you're in. In my opinion, the music in Saving Private Ryan really uh, speaks the true inner core of the movie and its characters. John Williams and Steven Spielberg very wisely decided not to have too much music uh, in the film. Yeah, that's right. And they reserved the music in just a very few spots, maybe for longer stretches than usual. But whenever the music comes in, is to offer uh, solace and maybe a commentary rather than being a mere accompaniment to what we are seeing. Yeah, you're right. Uh, th th this film was very sparsely scored. I mean, it would have been very easy to imagine that opening scene on Normandy Beach being scored somehow, right? But instead, they just let the emotional realism of that scene speak for itself. Uh, he was very specific about the scenes he, he did score. And uh, as usual, uh, they were, you know, so poignantly beautiful and heartfelt. Yeah, I think sonically speaking, it's that, you know, that the brass chorus of you know the opening credits and then him to the fall and that brass chorus is like it's a total benchmark when when you when you're all playing once it's incredible sound
And I think Symphony Hall really adds to that, doesn't it? I mean, in- oh yes, very much so. I mean, it's uh, you know it's considered to be one of the the top concert halls in the world, and just remarkably resonant in in such a beautifully natural acoustic, you know. And then you put the you know, Tanglewood Festival chorus out in the middle of the room, and you know together with the orchestra, give you arguably one of the film's most uh, magnificent sonic moments. onward and in the following years you performed in virtually every John Williams film score recorded in Los Angeles uh, and you also uh, participated in several other projects that John did in LA uh, one of which is uh, the American Journey album yeah I was on that recording uh, which was apparently uh, part of some larger project that uh, Bill Clinton commissioned for some Millennium Multimedia presentation, I believe, that uh, Steven Spielberg had directed. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that was a, a pretty challenging session, as I recall. Lots of notes and just technically all over the map. I think he even wrote this crazy variations on Happy Birthday for Seiji Ozawa on that record, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Anyway, that, that certainly ranks right up there as uh, one of the more memorable recordings we did with John. Uh, Malcolm McNabb was was playing first trumpet on that recording and uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> writing his coattails always makes situations like that just a, a little easier and more manageable. Oh yes, there are some really impressive pieces on that recording and, and many of them feature lots of fanfares and typical John Williams writing for the brass, which means <laughs> lots of notes for you guys to, to play in the trumpet section. <laughs> oh.
is there something that really stayed with you working all those years with John? I mean, is there something that uh, really you feel proud of? You know, Maurizio, I don't know if there's anything that I feel most proud of necessarily. Um, I just generally feel satisfied about the entire body of, of work we've done together. You know, it's, it's, it's really interesting to look back, <laughs> particularly at this stage of my life, and, and just see how all of the pieces of the puzzle fell into place for me, uh, leading up to my meeting and, and working with John. Yes. You know, I, I'm reminded of an old quote by the, the former great Green Bay Packer football coach, if I may, uh, Vince Lombardi, who said, uh, you know, success happens when preparation meets opportunity. And um, mm -hmm. that's exactly what happened in my case. Uh, everything I did prior to coming back to Boston in 1987 prepared me for that. And all I got to say is, I thank my lucky stars I was ready for that meeting. I'd love now to talk about your solo recording project called After Hours, uh, which is a beautiful recording featuring lots of jazz standards uh, for trumpet and jazz combo. And that was a very passionate, personal project for you. So what can you tell me about how that project started and how it developed? Well, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to Dave Norman, an old friend of mine, a fellow trumpet player, a fellow NEC graduate, actually, uh, for making that whole project happen. Uh, we were sitting around one evening and he asked me why I'd never done a record. And I, I told him I wasn't interested in doing a classical record, but that if I did a record, I'd be interested in doing a similar project that he'd done which was an easy listening jazz record he did that was, you know, along the same lines as After Hours. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Dave just kind of took the ball and ran with it. Uh, we, we pretty quickly came up with the 10 tune playlist. Uh, and then he goes and, and <laughs> calls some of the best jazz musicians in LA and, and they all agree to do it, which was pretty amazing in and of itself. Yeah. And then it just took mm -hmm. off from there. Uh, Anyway, they all came in and laid down their tracks, and, and then I was left with the awesome responsibility of, of doing justice to, to the incredible contribution these guys made by bringing everything in my power to sound like I even belonged uh, on the same record with them, you know? Yes. But I'm very happy with how it all turned out. Uh, Got to give a big shout out to my recording engineer, Nick Tancrater, who 
did just a great job recording everyone and, and uh, helped me put the whole thing together. Uh, mm -hmm. We spent some great times together doing that record. It was just a blast. presents some very beautiful fresh uh, spin on, on many jazz standards uh, there's a, a beautiful reading of summertime and, and also a very very uh, lovely rendition of uh, concierto de Aranjuez uh, for trumpet and so was it difficult to offer a fresh spin on so many great jazz standards I don't think I gave any particular fresh spin on anything other than concierto in summertime. Everything else was, you know, pretty standard and straight ahead. This particular rendition of summertime was was actually inspired by a, a, a Sade tune called Paradise that uh, has this uh, ostinato bass figure running through it. And I don't know, for some reason, I just <laughs> randomly started singing summertime over it one evening and, and uh, thought it was kind of cool. So... I went with it and that's how this particular rendition of Summertime came to be. Just so lucky to have had all these amazing musicians on my humble little project. I don't know if you're familiar with, with who these guys are, but the list reads like a who's who of LA studio and jazz musicians. Yes. Um, you know, they made this recording so much more than it might have been. And, and since it will be my last and only recording, uh, at least I can say that it was the absolute best it could have been. <laughs>
I really love this recording. I mean, I was listening to it today before we, we started our meeting and I was very, very impressed about, of course, your playing, but also about the overall atmosphere. You know, it's a very warm, very relaxing, um, beautiful record to, to put on and, and you know, just enjoy it and feel immersed in the music. Well, thanks. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm really glad you felt that way, Maurizio. You know, I, I wanted it to be a record that one would feel compelled to revisit and listen to repeatedly over time. It is. You know, over dinner or just, I don't know, hanging out with friends, whatever. Anyway, uh, hopefully others will enjoy it the same way you did. But did you ever try to take a shot at John Williams's trumpet concerto? Uh, yeah, I did. I, I played it one time with the Rotterdam Philharmonic, uh, not too long after he wrote it, I think, uh, and played the first two movements with the piano for uh, a Yamaha Brass Wind Festival in Japan in, in early 2000, I believe. Um, you know, I talked with John about the possibility of recording the piece, and <laughs> he seemed He seemed both open to the idea, but a, a little reticent at the time, oddly enough. Uh, he, he mentioned to me he wasn't convinced it, it was a very good piece of music. And, uh, you know, that's pretty much how it was left. Uh, and, you know, the idea was never revisited, really. Uh, so I think the only two recordings are Arturo Sandoval's with the LSO and, and the recent recording Tom Hooten did with a studio orchestra here in LA with, with John conducting. You know, I have to hand it to Tom for, for, for making that happen. I mean, it was his idea to, to record it here at, at Sony Studios, which happens to be John's favorite room and, and did a, a very successful fundraising campaign to, you know, pay for the room and all the musicians and, And, you know, he sounded wonderful on it, and the orchestra sounded really amazing as well. So, um, I don't know. I think it's a very effective piece and, and certainly a great addition to the contemporary trumpet literature. Oh, yes, mm. absolutely. Yeah. It refers to his more private side, we could say. Uh, his concert music is a, comes from a very different place than his film music. Of course, he's much more free to explore a different side of his musical personality. That's right. But at the same time, I think uh, it's an occasion for him to to work on different muscles, we can say. Well, you know, it, it must be an incredible challenge to compose anything, you know, let alone a, an instrumental concerto. Uh, you know, all I can say is that it's a good thing I wasn't a composer. I mean, I, I never would have finished anything. I mean, to arrive at a point where you where you feel completely satisfied with with what you've composed, you know, it, it seems almost unfathomable to me. Uh, when you have so many choices and directions, you could go in at any point in time. You, know. I, I'm sure John labors over his writing incessantly. You know, he, he's so meticulous and and such a perfectionist. Uh, I just imagine that's how it is with him. In many ways, I think that. Uh... The process for him is very, very similar. It's always going deep down into some place, finding that core, uh, that musical core, and then uh, going up and mm -hmm. coming up again uh, with that beautiful uh, solution, musical solution that only him seems to be able to find. Even if it's private, 
music. Um, it feels like it wants to speak to to a large audience. Well, you know, that's why I find the concerti he's written so interesting. Um, you know, we're all used to hearing John's film scores or ceremonial music where, you know, he, he's writing to something or, or for a specific occasion. You know, even though he's writing his, his concerti for specific people's playing, he's still left to come up with something, as you said, that is uh, more personal and reflective of his more private persona and something that seems to me shows, uh, you know, not, not only his passionate and uh, emotional side, but also his more academic and intellectual side, I think. Absolutely. conversation uh what do you think will be john williams legacy well i think his legacy will be that he's arguably the greatest and, and most influential film score composer ever um i know it's a bit risky to call anyone out as the greatest necessarily particularly in a field of such extraordinary talent and achievement and there will be those who may take issue with that but uh I doubt that it would ever be a point of, of serious disagreement to say that John is solidly in a class of his own and has probably done more to move and, and influence generations of moviegoers than anyone ever has. Um, I just feel so fortunate to have had the opportunity to work with him for so many years and to have been a part of it. It's, uh, it's been quite a ride. Thank you very much for giving so much time uh, to us for and for speaking uh, with so much care and detail about your many beautiful collaborations with John Williams and also about your great musical life. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with uh, both of you, Maurizio and Tim, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity to have uh, been able to do this. And, and Maurizio, I really appreciate the fact that you're doing this whole uh, project. I, I think it's going to be... Uh, a great resource and I think a lot of people are going to really enjoy it. It's wonderful because I know a lot of your kind of ethos is, you know, projecting to the audience, you know, beyond the orchestra. And, and, and I think, um, you know, we as, as music and film lovers have a lot to be thankful for, you know, so I think it's important to stay there. And Tim Burden, thank you very much for being part of this once again with me. So all the best to both of you. Thanks to Tim Morrison for his time and generosity. Visit thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com for more interviews and articles. Thank you for listening.
Until the next episode of the Legacy of John Williams podcast. Thank you.